freedom is worth fighting for. That Casper would fight the homicide conviction was never in question. And in fact, he didn't even have to do anything to get the process started. My lawyer told me, you know, hey, we will be filing an appeal, just hang in there. He says his attorney began by asking for a new trial based on the claim that certain evidence shouldn't have been admitted in the first one. This request was filed with the same court that had convicted him. So, of course, the judge in my case was like, no, you know, everything was done correctly, the evidence stands. Casper's attorney then turned to the state appellate division. In addition to arguments about evidence, he challenged the state's definition of self-defense. The case worked its way up through the system with agonizing slowness. Months passed, then a year. And then I got the denial on the whole appeal. Casper was crushed, but he says he can't fault the court for their ruling. Everything was done correctly. Like, nobody manufactured any evidence or anything like that. Nobody lied or anything. Technically, it was a legal conviction and everything was done properly. The problem wasn't the trial. It was the way the law was written. It was just a fucked up law, you know, and I couldn't get around that. His attorney wasn't optimistic. So my lawyer tells me he's exhausted all his time and energy and everything else on this case. And, you know, if I want to pursue it further, it would have to go to the federal courts. And that's kind of out of his ballpark. That would cost more money, this, that, and the other thing. But there was no more money. By this point, Casper's father was barely making ends meet. Still, he was desperate to help his son. He tried contacting the ACLU and Amnesty International, and Amnesty International's like, yeah, that's kind of not what we do here. <laughs> we deal with bigger cases. And, you know, but he, he tried. He was like reaching out to whoever he could, like, hey, look, you know, this is what my kid's in jail for. And I don't think he should be. He was defending himself, you know. That might have been the end of it, but two things happened in the years that followed. First, Casper managed to enroll in a paralegal studies course, which taught him how to perform legal research and file his own paperwork. And second, another inmate pointed him to a clause in the Constitution that was relevant to his case. As it turned out, those two things changed the game entirely. This is Hate No More. The story of one man's journey into and out of violent white supremacy. I'm Henry Rambo. Even before the homicide, Casper was no stranger to trouble. He'd been convicted of multiple crimes, including burglary. But he says he generally owned up to them. Whenever I had gotten in trouble in the past and I knew I was guilty, I pretty much just pled guilty. I didn't try and bullshit them or nothing like that. You know, I fessed up. Yeah, you caught me, whatever. Do what you got to do. His hope was always that the court would show leniency. And, and for the most part, they did. They took it easy on me. I mean, the burglary charge, I could have ended up in state prison for that. But the judge was like, all right, listen, you know, you fessed up. You're willing to make amends and pay restitution and everything else. So we're going to cut you some slack. Casper intended to take this approach with the armed robbery charge he picked up when trying to steal someone's car after the homicide. 
and he said as much to the attorney his father had hired. I'm like, well, I can go ahead and get a public defender for that because I'm going to plead guilty anyway. And he's like, why? I said, I did it, dude. Like, I, you know, what do you mean? Why? I did it. I'm guilty. And he was like, well, let's table that for now. We'll talk about that later. You know, I'm like, all right. The homicide was different, though. I was like, I'm not pleading guilty to this. The attorney asked him to explain how everything had unfolded. So I told him the whole story, and he's like, so it was self-defense. And I'm like, yeah. And then I, I seen the look on his face, you know, and he's like, wait, was it his knife? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, you didn't have a knife. I was like, no. And he goes, so you used the martial arts technique on him. And I'm like, well, yeah, pretty much. And he's like, okay. Casper had been assuming that these facts would work in his favor. But if anything, his attorney looked less confident after hearing them. And I'm like, what? Why do you look worried? You know, I'm the one in jail. And he's like, technically, you don't have a right to do that in the state of New Jersey. I'm like, what? And he goes, if you would have had a knife exactly the same as his and stabbed him with your knife, they would have considered it equal force. But because you used his weapon and your martial arts background, they're going to consider it excessive force. In addition to that, there was another detail that worried his attorney. The fact that Casper had run. It was certain to come up in his trial. Casper's father was bothered by it as well. He even said, he, you know, why'd you run? And I'm like, I don't fucking know, because I knew I was going to jail and I didn't want to go to jail. Despite these weaknesses in his defense, once the jury had been selected, Casper was feeling confident. We thought we had a decent jury. You know, um, we had a couple of people, more than a couple, like they were all veterans and shit. And I'm like, all right, these guys will back me up. They've been in situations where they probably had to defend themselves, or at least they've been trained to, you know. After what seemed like an eternity, Casper remembers it as 11 months, though from the records I was able to find, I think it was more like eight. The trial finally arrived. It wasn't as big a spectacle as he expected. And like I said, it's nothing like TV. It doesn't go for days on end. You know, my trial lasted for about nine and a half, almost 10 hours. It was a one day affair. I asked him what parts of his defense stood out to him the most. For me, the biggest highlight was this guy's girlfriend who he was beating up. You know, the, the girl that I tried to save. Well, I did save, I guess, in a way. She testified on my behalf. Right after her, his sister testified on my behalf. I killed her brother, and she testified for me. And I'm thinking, we got this in the bag. There was one thing in particular the victim's girlfriend said that affected Casper deeply. That she was so relieved that somebody finally stopped him because she thought she was going to die. And she said when he first started, she kept screaming for help, and people just stood there and stared at him. And she just, she was just down on all fours thinking, you know, he's going to beat me to death, you know, this is the end of my life. And then she saw me jump in there. 
said she was trying to, uh, she was trying to tell me thank you after I stopped him, but she was so beat up, she couldn't get any words out. And of course the prosecutor asked her, you know, well, you know, what happened after that? She was like, well, he ran. Casper says he could immediately see the effect those last words had on everyone in the courtroom. And even decades later, he still kicks himself. I always ask myself, like, why? Why did you fucking run? Why didn't you just sit there? Even if I knew I was going to jail, I should have just fucking stayed right there. Because running made me look that much more guilty. You know, and that's the same thing my jury thought. Yeah, you ran because you knew you fucked up. There was no question that it hurt his case. But the final nail in his coffin came from the law itself. And then during the closing arguments, the prosecutor started quoting the law to the jury. And I, I saw it as soon as he started telling them what excessive force was. I saw the looks on their faces like, oh, you know, and I'm like, I'm done. And he was right. The jury didn't take long to find him guilty. Now that some time has passed and he has some perspective, he says he can't blame them. They went by what the law said. It's it's kind of that, you know, I you fucking people screwed me over at the same time going, it's really not your fault. You did what the law says you're supposed to do. You know, now I feel that way. Back then it was like, fuck every one of you. If I ever see, I'm going to break every fucking bone in your face. After his sentencing, there was only one more loose end. The armed robbery, which had occurred in a different county. He'd already pled guilty to it, and the only remaining question was how much time he would have to serve for it. The judge in the robbery case, I have to admit, he did right. He gave me a concurrent sentence for the robbery charge, which meant that I would be serving time on both of those cases at the same time. That was a fair deal. You know, I can't argue with that. And that was it. Regardless of how his appeal went, Casper was going to be in prison for years. We already know what happened next. We've heard about the white supremacist propaganda he was bombarded with, the fights he got into, and the gang he founded with four other men. But in fact, there was much more to prison life than gangs and fights. The New Jersey system had a variety of educational programs at the time. And if for no other reason than to stave off boredom, Casper started signing up for every course that was available. The first one he got into was graphic arts. It lasted nine months, and he found the skills that were taught in it to be quite enjoyable. You learned how to do typesetting and bookbinding. So it was pretty neat, you know, and I got to work on the prison newsletter. Even today, Casper remembers the instructor fondly. He was some old hippie dude, though. He was pretty neat. He was shot out. And he offered me a job in graphic arts department, you know, once I graduated. And I'm like, yeah, why not? It was a big step up from cleaning duty. And Casper realized that these courses could open significant doors for him. The availability of various certifications gave him something positive to work toward. And he found himself setting his sights on newer and better jobs. Then I moved on to being a teacher's aide. That was another nine-month course. And I got the certificate for that and started helping guys in the GED class. Of all the jobs he held during his years in prison, he looks back on this as one of the most rewarding. 
you know, at first I was just looking at it like it's a better job. It's more money. I'm going to do that now. But then I started getting into it and realized like, damn, there's guys in this prison that literally cannot read and write. Casper says this led to what even today he thinks of as one of the best things he ever did. It involved another inmate who'd heard that Casper was a good teacher. He came up to me one day and he was like, listen, man, he was like, um, everybody tells me you're really good at, you know, helping teach people how to do stuff. And I'm like, yeah, what do you need? He was like, I just want to know how to write my name. I'm sorry, what? I want to know how to write my name. So I started teaching him how to print his name. I'm like, look, this is your name. Just keep copying these letters over and over. It didn't stop there, though. And then I told him, I said, look, before you start learning how to spell, let's teach you how to read. You know, and he's like, why? And I'm like, because if you can understand how to sound stuff out reading, it'll be easier to spell it because you'll be able to sound it out. And it worked. Casper also felt like he made an impact in teaching math. Being from the street, I started telling the teachers, look, you got to tell them to look at this like a drug deal. This is your money. You know, don't look at the bills. Look at the numbers now. These are your bills now. And guys started picking up on that and learning. Largely because of these experiences, Casper feels that his time in prison wasn't a total loss. As fucked up as I was, I did actually do some good. It was around this time, after a few years had passed, that Casper's appeal had hit a dead end and his father had run out of money. He wasn't ready to give up, but he didn't know how to move forward. I couldn't afford another attorney or anything. And everybody was always telling me, you know, get in the law library, read those books, you know, do your own paperwork and all. And I had no fucking clue what any of this shit meant. So I decided I'm going to look into actual courses for this. He now had someone to turn to for help. His boss, who was in charge of the prison's educational programs. When Casper asked him for advice, he enrolled Casper in an intro to paralegal studies course right there at the prison. Then he got him into a correspondence program at Ohio State University, and Casper spent the next year reading law books and mailing in assignments. So I finished this program. I get certified in paralegal studies. Basically, all that means is I have a basic understanding on how to shepherdize cases, fill out paperwork, and file paperwork. As far as writing it out and drawing it up, I was, eh, so-so. However basic it may have been, the program gave Casper the skills he needed to resurrect his appeal. I started from ground zero, and I started looking at constitutional stuff and trying to argue that. Some of it I got wrong, but it was a learning experience. The first thing he submitted was another appeal to the court that had originally convicted him. It was rejected outright, but he was determined to learn from every setback. He showed his materials to other inmates and asked them for advice. One of them pointed him in a useful new direction. Somebody told me, listen, you really need to read Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution. It's uh... almost verbatim. Casper quotes what's known as the Privileges and Immunities Clause. It says, 
the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. So I, I looked at that and I'm like, okay, I don't understand this. So I went back, you know, to the guy that told me to look that up and I'm like, so what are you, what are you trying to tell me? And he was like, look up self-defense laws now. Specifically, he was telling Casper to show that a majority of the other states would have acquitted him for the homicide. I had to find and make sure that currently at that time, there was a majority of states that had self-defense laws that would apply to my case. This gave Casper a concrete goal, and that was when his work truly started. He began spending every spare minute in the prison's law library to research self-defense laws in other states. He even recruited others to help him. So I'm just digging through book after book after book. And I would pay a couple of guys cigarettes and stamps and stuff, like here's a carton of cigarettes, here's some stamps. Look for things that match my case in these books. More months passed, and then... I finally get enough. I get them all listed out and everything, and I send this appeal into New, you know, New Jersey Appellate Division saying, based on these cases and based on Article 4 of the U.S. Constitution, you have to give me the same right to self-defense as these cases had. They denied me. I can't really remember their reasoning. It was something along the lines that this was not a constitutional case. My constitutional rights weren't violated. He says he pushed his appeal as high as it could go. And in the end, the court shot back with a list of cases in which others had been convicted under the same law. It became clear that he wasn't going to get anywhere with the state court. Then I went to the federal court and I'm like, you know what? I'm not even doing all this legal mumbo jumbo bullshit. I'm just going to write it out plain and clear. My case should be a precedent based on this constitutional right. By now, he was accustomed to rejections but this time was different. The district court tells me they want to grant me a hearing. I'm blown away by this one. I'm like, holy shit. I don't know if I'm ready for a hearing. Like I just figured they're either going to accept it or deny it. Now I got to go talk to a fucking judge. <laughs> he cleaned up as best he could, growing out his hair and shaving his goatee so he didn't look too much like a skinhead. But when he appeared before the judge, he didn't have anything to present beyond what he'd already submitted. And I told him flat out, I'm like, Your Honor, I'm not prepared to argue anything. In response, the judge rescheduled the hearing and appointed him a standby counsel, a woman who went by the name Jerry, to help him build his case. She sat down with Casper and went through his materials with him. And she's like, okay, I think you did a really good job. Let's clean this up a little bit, though. And she wrote everything out and, you know, lawyers speak for me. Jerry said that if Casper didn't feel comfortable arguing his own case, she could argue it for him. And he was relieved to put it in her hands. We went back for the official hearing and she argued to the federal court that I should be granted the right to self-defense because in... 42 other states across the country, there were cases very similar to mine where someone either had the weapon taken from them and used against them 
or it was almost exactly like mine where they were wrestling over a knife or a gun fell to the ground and the initial assailant ended up dying from that knife or gun or other weapon. When Jerry finished presenting Casper's case, it was once again time to wait. Four months passed before he received notification of the judge's decision. The result wasn't what he'd been hoping for, but it wasn't an outright denial either. He kicked it back down to the the state um, appellate division and told them to review this appeal again and render a decision. And I'm like, well, fuck, that's kind of not what I wanted. Like, I really just wanted you to tell me, hey, you know, you're good to go. And we're going to get rid of this conviction, you know. Casper was told that it was a matter of protocol for federal courts to send cases back to the states to give them one last chance to rule on them. In this case, nothing substantial had changed since the state's previous ruling. So, of course, they deny it. It goes back to the feds again. Again, Casper waited, anticipating another outright denial. But it wasn't denied. It was bumped up to the next level in the federal system. Jerry seemed encouraged by this. She's like, this is really good news. And I'm like, why? And she goes, because he didn't have to wave it up. He could have just went along with what the state said and decided, okay, well, your appeal's denied, start over. She's like, yeah, so going in front of this panel is a really good sign because he thinks there's enough here that they're going to overturn your conviction. More time passed and at last a hearing was scheduled before a panel of judges. Jerry told Casper that he would be attending the hearing remotely. He had no idea what that meant. They had to take me from Rawway over to the local court building. I go in there, we're having this hearing over the computer, whatever, really freaked me to fuck out. Like, you know, because I've been in jail since 1991. I had never seen this kind of technology. I'm like, what the fuck is going on here? He watched as Jerry argued his case on a computer screen. When she finished, the judges said they would confer before rendering a decision, and they logged out. Casper was left one-on-one with Jerry, wondering how long they would have to wait. He asked, expecting an answer on the order of an hour or so, but Jerry laughed. She's like, yeah, you'll be going back to the prison here in a few minutes. They'll let us know in a couple of weeks, you know, what's going on. Sure enough, he was taken back to Rawway and a few more weeks passed before he finally learned the judge's decision. It was July 26th. I got legal mail. Now, when you get legal mail, you have to go sign for it. You know, so go up there to the desk. I get my little, you know, hall pass slip or whatever. Head on down to the mailroom. Whatever was waiting for him, Casper knew the COs would open it and thoroughly examine it. They pull everything out upside down so they can't read anything. And they spread it out, make sure there's nothing in there, tap the envelope out, put it all back in and hand it to you. The first thing Casper noticed as they did this in front of him was that there wasn't much there. And immediately, he started smiling. He had long since learned that denial packets were thick because they always contained detailed explanations of the reasons for the denial. The cop looks at me, he was like, well, you're smiling awful big. He was like, you want to read that here? And I was like, fuck no, I'll read this in my cell. He returned to his cell, and as soon as he shut the door, it opened again. It was dinner time. And I slammed my door back shut. So I got this envelope, 
and I'm sitting there for like a good 20 minutes and I'm just looking at this thing like, man, you know, I know what it is. I know what it is, but I don't want to open this. Like I am so scared of being let down again. He says he made himself a cup of coffee, lit a cigarette and turned the envelope over and over in his trembling hands. One of the COs noticed and approached him. You know, he's like, well, what's going on with this? He's like, you know, I came around a few minutes ago. You were sitting there staring at that thing. He's like, come on, man, open it up. You know, it's all right. So I open this fucking thing up. I start reading it, and it tells me they're granting my appeal and ordering the state of New Jersey to set precedents for self-defense. <laughs> tried harder than this when I first read it. <laughs> the court wasn't just vacating his sentence. They were overturning the conviction. And, and there's a difference. When they say they're vacating your sentence, that just means they're letting you out of prison, but it's still going to show up on your record that you had been arrested and convicted for that. But when a conviction is overturned... It goes away. It never happened. Casper's release wasn't immediate. He still had time to serve for the armed robbery. But his change in status triggered a recalculation of his sentence, and suddenly he found himself standing in front of the parole board. He asked them how much time he had left to max out his sentence for the robbery. And it was like a little over 18 months or whatever, you know, and I was like, well, screw that, max me out. And they're like, we were going to give you parole. And I'm like, I don't want it max me out. They must not often encounter inmates who turn down parole and elect to serve out their maximum sentence. When they asked him why, his answer was simple. Because I don't want to have to deal with you people anymore. Like, I just want this to be done, done. Stick a fork in it, done. More specifically, I don't have to worry about reporting a parole. I don't have to worry about you showing up in my house or nothing else. I've been here over a decade now, so to a few more months ain't nothing. You know, I've done more time than that in a hole. When they granted his request, he assumed he would be serving the remaining 18 months in Rahway. But that turned out not to be the case. As soon as I got back from the parole board, it was like the next day, um, they called me down to the warden's office and he's like, listen, pack your bags, you're leaving. I'm like, what, where am I going? And he goes, you're going somewhere other than here because you're not a max custody inmate anymore. The reason was that Casper would now be in much greater danger if he stayed in Rahway. Rahway and Trenton and, and Northern State, if you're short in those prisons, there's a good chance that you know one of the lifers is just going to have a bad day and say, fuck that, I can't go home, neither can he, I'm going to kill him. With this in mind, they had to find another place to keep him. Initially, they tried to put him in a facility with dorms that was a stone's throw from where he grew up. But he told them he might run away if they sent him there. So they finally settled on another prison. They sent me back to Riverfront uh, up in Camden, and I finished out my time there. Casper still got in trouble a few times during those last 18 months. But it was nothing too serious. And before he knew it, it was finally time for him to walk free. Getting out? That was a trip. 
Without realizing it, he had accrued some good time, and they ended up releasing him eight days early. But he didn't find out until the day before. CO calls me up to the desk and he's like, hey, they want you down at intake. The CO handed him a green hall pass and he went to intake, where they took his picture for a photo ID and got his measurements for his release clothes. They give you these really funky looking blue jeans and a white button up shirt. Casper says that anyone who saw you wearing those clothes would know that you just got out of prison and you might have to show your release ID to prove you didn't steal the clothes and escape. Next day, rolls around, they call me out before they even do count. And I didn't tell nobody in the jail I was leaving. Even though Riverfront was supposed to be safer than the other prisons, Casper hadn't wanted to take any chances. It's like five o'clock in the morning, CO comes to my cell, you know, ready. I'm like, dude, I've been up all fucking night. I've been ready. You know, like, let's go. He left his TV, radio, and commissary items for his cellmate. On his way out, he was given a check for his prison bank balance and $21 in cash. They give you $21 because no matter where you are in New Jersey, you can get from one point to another on $21. Apart from that money and the clothes on his back. I had, you know, my personal stuff, photographs, letters, legal work, shit like that. And that was it. And I had everything that I was, you know, taking home in one box. And that's how I walked out of prison. He emerged looking like the epitome of a skinhead. I got a goatee halfway down my fucking chest, a bald head, and you can tell I just got out of jail. He made his way to the bus station a block away, bought a ticket, boarded the bus for home, and started to take in a world that had passed him by and was now entirely foreign to him. I'm just like looking at all this different stuff, you know, new cars, the way people are dressed, everybody's walking around with a cell phone and shit, you know, and I'm like, what the fuck, you know? There's this guy on the bus who has a cell phone, but he's like got it hooked up to his earbuds or whatever. I'm not thinking he's on a cell phone. I'm thinking this guy's listening to a Walkman and shit, because that's what I remembered from when I went in. And he's talking, and he's he's like, yeah, what's up, man? How you doing? And I was like, pretty good. How are you? And he said some off-the-wall shit. I don't know. It was his conversation. I wasn't a part of it, but he said something else. And I'm like, what? Dude, are you even talking to me? And he looks up at me, and he pulls one of the headphones out, and he goes, are you talking to me? And I was like, nah, man, you're good. Technology had changed so much, he felt as if he'd walked into a science fiction movie. None of this shit existed when I went to prison. When the bus got to his neighborhood, he didn't recognize anything. Old buildings were gone. Roads and bridges had changed. It looked so unfamiliar, he was worried he'd missed his stop. So I grab my box and I move up towards the driver, you know, and I sit down in the seat, like, right behind him. And I lean up and I said, hey, man, where are we? And he was like, North Wildwood Boulevard, going into North Wildwood. And I'm like, oh, Okay. And he's like, Where are you from? And I said, Well, I'm I'm from here. I'm I'm a local. I grew up in Dennisville. And he was like, looks back at me in the mirror and he's like, Did you just get out of prison? And I was like, Yeah. The driver told Casper to wait. And once everyone else had gotten off the bus, he took him straight to his mother's house. He dropped me off right at my mom's door. 
you know, I was like, cool, man, thank you, because I don't know how else I would have got here, you know, because everything looks different. So I go up, I knock on the door, nobody's there. He hadn't told anyone he was getting out early. He'd wanted his arrival to be a surprise. Now he had nothing to do but wait, though. He decided to walk to a bank and cash his check. Now I got money in my pocket. I've been in jail for 12 and a half years. I'm like, I've never legally been in the bar. I'm going to a bar. He went to a bar where the police liked to hang out. Just to mess with them, he says. And the bartender recognized him as soon as he walked in. I didn't know it, but the former chief of police for Wildwood had bought this bar. And he's bartending this day. And he was like, what do you want? And I was like, I want a Budweiser on tap. He pours me a bud. I throw some money up on the bar. I drink this fucking beer. He comes over and leans up on the bar. And he's like, how'd that taste? And I was like, that tasted pretty fucking good. And he goes, tastes like a second one? I'm like, why not? Pours me another beer. Pound this fucking beer down, you know. And uh, he comes up and he says, listen, all that shit back then, he was like, it's fucked up how it happened. It shouldn't happen. But what are you going to do? It was the first time he'd ever felt like a police officer was on his side. They talked a while longer, and Casper told him how he'd finally gotten his conviction overturned. And he was like, all right, good. Well, keep yourself out of trouble. You know, and I said, well, here's for the beer. And he goes, nah, put that in your pocket. You don't owe me nothing. He left the bar with a strange feeling, a feeling that he had all the time in the world, that he could do anything he wanted. And then I just went walking. I went up on the boardwalk, seen all the new shit up there, the new rides. I'm looking at all these arcade games that are just absolutely phenomenal. I mean, I got locked up when the very first Nintendo and Sega were just coming out. And now they got these video games that look like fucking movies and shit. You know, I'm like, holy fuck, you know, I damn, you know, this is a whole lot different than pinball and fucking air hockey. As he walked, taking in all the changes, he was coming closer and closer to the pavilion where the homicide had happened. When he got there, he stopped. So, I'm walking around the pavilion, and I'm looking at all the names and shit carved into some of the benches and the pillars and shit like that and I'm like holy fuck I remember that person you know I remember these two hooking up for the summer they were so in love and probably never saw each other again you know and all that stuff and then uh, I went over to that one corner and I just sat there on a the bench and I stared at that fucking spot you know and even though everything had been replaced over the years you know you couldn't see where the blood was or none of that it was like I knew I knew what happened there I just I don't know told myself this has got to be done now you you gotta just move on you know it's over and put yourself back together I never forget it. You know, the the only person I really wasn't trying to kill is the only person I actually killed. 
<laughs> you know, I had guys in prison. I don't know how the fuck they survived. I chased a guy around the freaking chow hole in Rawway, stabbing him with a, a fucking piece of fence about that long that I had wiggled off of the fucking fence out of the yard and straightened it out. And I stabbed this dude 14 fucking times, never hit a vital organ. I don't know how he survived that because I was sure as shit trying to kill him. But then we got one person I really didn't intend to do that kind of damage to, and he ended up dead. That's something I don't wish on anybody. You know, I, I get it. You got soldiers and people that train to actually do that. But taking somebody's life is not an easy thing. Now, I don't give a fuck how tough somebody tells you they are. Dealing with knowing that you took somebody's life. It, it's it's not as easy as people think, you know, unless you literally have something wrong in your fucking brain, it's going to get to you. He says he sat there until the sun went down, and then he realized he hadn't eaten anything. After so many years of nothing but prison food, he couldn't stop himself from binging on everything the boardwalk had to offer. Got sick eating regular street food after all that time. I was plowing through all kinds of fucking food, cheese steaks, pizza, french fries, fucking ice cream, all kinds of shit. The binge wasn't really about the food. It was about what he'd been fighting for all those years, taking those classes in paralegal studies, submitting appeal after appeal after appeal, and never giving up, even when the state had told him it was over. It was about freedom. That feeling, though, being out and not worrying about count time or anybody trying to fucking shank you or whatever, it was really good, really scary, and super surreal all at once. Just a roller coaster of emotions. You know, you're happy, you're sad that you had to leave certain people in prison. You're scared because, like, what the fuck do I do now? How do I even begin? That was the question. How would he begin? There were the obvious things he would have to do. Find work and a place to stay. And then one of the biggest things he would have to figure out in the coming years was what role white supremacy would play in his life moving forward. We'll hear more about that next time on Hate No More. If you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment right now, yes, now, to rate it, review it, and share it. To support us and get immediate ad-free access to all episodes, go to patreon.com slash hate no more or click on the link in the show notes. Hate No More was written and produced by me, Henry Rambo. Sound design was provided by Michael Parkhurst at Nostalgic Innovations. Special thanks to my wife and to Ryan, Allison, George, and, of course, Casper. Finally, there's more than enough outrage and hate in the world already. If you log onto social media at all today, instead of sharing what upsets you, do what you can to make kindness and empathy go viral. We all need to play a higher game. And with that, thank you for listening.